From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Friday, July 14th. Tourist season is in full swing in Moab. As you might expect, restaurants and hotels are close to capacity. But what you might not expect is that so is the wastewater treatment facility. This feels so bad. Oh my god. Is that just shit falling from uh, the sky? It's a sludge. Today, we're letting our sewage tell the story of tourism in Moab. All right, so that's just raw sewage? That, yeah, that's raw sewage right down there. That's what it looks like. In fact, there's a lot we can learn about our community based on what gets flushed down the toilet. Can you tell how the tourist industry is doing based on how much water you guys get here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty good measure of how full town is. I can tell how busy town was based on what I see you know, on a Monday morning from the data from the weekends. Was this past weekend a busy weekend? Uh, yeah, it was pretty busy. Uh, not as busy as like two weeks ago, but yeah. This is Obi Tejada, the Utility Services Director at Moab's Wastewater Reclamation Facility. So you said earlier that you have a million gallons per day going out. How many gallons per day do you have coming in? Coming in mirrors what's going out. It's about, you know, about the same. Does that number change depending on like how many people are in town? Uh, yeah, pretty significantly. Uh, in the winter, our lowest flows are like around January, February. We average for January probably 0.75 or 0.8 million gallons a day. Like at the peak season, which is right about now, we're at like 1.25. The highest I've seen is like 1.3. I know 0.7 to 1.25 doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a big swing. In the spring, we also see a lot of uh, variance by day of the week. The weekends will jump up pretty high, and then the weekdays will, will drop down pretty low. Not only can the treatment plant tell us how busy town is, it can also tell us how healthy our community is. So I see there's a sign that says COVID sample in fridge. What's that all about? early in the COVID cycle. The state health department started testing for COVID DNA in the um, wastewater and they, from that they could extrapolate the COVID rates in town. You could actually see it earlier than you would see it in the hospitals. And so it, it gave uh, you know, the health department a pretty good tool to uh, determine whether to open or close or masking, all that sort of thing. And they're doing it still to this day. They want to, I don't know if they're, they're going to get the funding, but they want to expand that into like um, testing for flu and for pharmaceuticals. And they can extrapolate, like, you know, the health of the community on these different factors. Plants are really good at destroying diseases. The bacteria uh, will, will destroy most. Most diseases won't make it through the plant. What he means is that they can cultivate good bacteria to kill bad bacteria or bacteria that cause diseases like E. coli. Really, bacteria do the majority of the work at the treatment plant. Mostly bacteria doing the dirty work. In other words... So the bacteria just eats all of the poop? Yeah, it's pretty incredible what it will eat. All we add is air and the sewage. And so we, we try to get the right amount of bacteria in there for the right amount of sewage, right? So we're in the right balance of, uh, we call it F to M, food to microorganisms. And so you're just like managing how much of the waste and the bacteria is there at any given time. But if there's too much or too little, how do you, what do you do then? At the end of the settling cycle, the bacteria settles to the bottom and we have a pump that pumps it out and we press it and that, that's what becomes our sludge and goes to the Klondike. So that's really our main way to like steer the plant is through wasting. Okay, that's really interesting. I would have assumed that you would add something to the waste to like treat it before the water goes back. The processes that are going on in this plant would happen in the environment. It's just much more sped up here because we're introducing air and we're, you know, like holding uh, a tank of bacteria at a much uh, 
larger concentration than you would find in in nature but you know like if these wastes went into the water into the river it would break down in the same way you just take much longer the plants alive as they say you know. It's really just bacteria, air, and UV light that cleans the water. Tahada took me on a tour to show me how the process works. All right, so we're at the big pools now. This is where all the magic happens, right? This is, this is where most of the treatment is happening, is in these basins. So you can see this one here is in a aeration phase. It'll oxygenate like this uh, and activating the, the bacteria to eat, you know, at, in an aerobic way. It'll go through cycles of aerobic and anaerobic, so we get uh, different types of treatment with each phase of treatment. So I get how you put oxygen in, but how do you take oxygen out? Uh, when we stop, the oxygen will come out on its own pretty quickly. So the, the bacteria will continue eating the oxygen in there and it, it'll, it'll drop out pretty quickly. Yeah, okay. it won't stay oxygenated for long. Okay. Can't tell, it's got the foam on top, which is fairly normal. Uh, if we were to check, that foam is only like an inch thick and below it, like it's all clear water. Wow, okay. Is this like the most scenic wastewater treatment plant ever? We got a great view of La Salsa. Yeah, the portal's pretty good too. But when we get over there, you'll have a great view of the portal from the, from the equalization basin. Yeah. So there's about a million gallons in about here. About a million gallons, a little over, yeah. Yeah, so we only operate in like the top three and a half feet of the basin. So the rest of it's just for holding onto that biology that we're trying to treat the flow in with it. Just all this water just goes out to the river? Kind of, it's got one more stop. So it comes in here and then it goes out in that little hole over there. And from there it goes to the UVs uh, and then it goes out to the river. Yep. Okay, and the UVs sort of zaps it one last time. It reduces E. coli and bacteria and that sort of thing, but it doesn't kill it completely. Uh, and then when it goes to the UV, it actually doesn't kill it. It inactivates it so it can't uh, propagate, but it, you know, it has the same thing. It like kills the reproductive element of the E. coli? Yeah, it destroys their DNA is my understanding in a way that makes it so it can't reproduce. So it's actually still alive. It just re can't reproduce, so it's not dangerous. Why is it important to not kill it, but have it not be able to reproduce? It's not important. It's just so, um, so the last plant used uh, chlorine instead, and chlorine will kill it. But uh, UV is just, we're not putting chlorine into the river. It's just environmentally, it's a much better way to treat. One of the grossest things at the plant is something called septage, which is the super concentrated sewage that comes from all of the pit toilets around Moab. When we get smell complaints, it's mostly coming from here. That stuff's pretty, pretty gnarly. Yeah, it smells really bad. So does Moab have a uniquely high amount of septage because of all the like parks and outdoor rec and like all of the pit toilets? Moab's in an interesting space as far as the treatment plant because we have what's called a mechanical plant, which is a very high tech plant, but we're a kind of a small town for the type of plant we have. So we're at the bottom end of like needing this plant because of our hotels and because of some of the other factors in Moab. Like we, we need to have a plant that's you know, more advanced than if we were a, you know, a town this size would normally need. So it, it just comes, it goes through this machine which separates out like uh, all the trash and rags and that sort of thing and then it goes into, this is a big tank right here. Okay, when you say rags, you mean toilet paper? I mean, no, I mean like wet wipes. But here's my PSA part, don't flush wet wipes. That's really hard on the sewer system and the treatment plant. They don't break down in the same way toilet paper does. Is that a big problem in Moab? It's a big problem everywhere. They like tie themselves into these ropes that will wad up in, in pumps and then we have to go in and cut them out and uh, it's pretty awful. Yeah, they, they should not be flushed. Even if they say flushable on them, they're, they're not flushable, you should throw them out. Oh God, it smells so bad. Do you ever wear masks? No, you, after a while, like you don't notice it, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so this is our rag machine here. You can see that's the rags coming out in that bin. Oh my God. And there. Uh, and then it, this machine pulls it out, puts it in that bin, and we haul that off to Klondike. Wow. Can I get a closer look at that? Sure, if you like, yeah. Oh my god, it is so gross. <laughs> <laughs> it 
It's one of the grossest things here, I would say. The bacteria can do a lot, but they can't break down rags. Those have to be hauled off to the dump at Klondike Bluffs, just north of the airport. And when the bacteria die, they also have to be hauled off to the dump. There are so many bacteria at the plant that when they die and settle to the bottom of the pool, they create a thick sludge that gets compacted and eventually carted off. As Tejada said earlier, the treatment plant is alive, which means sometimes it gets sick and sometimes it dies. Sometime last year, last fall, something came through and our plant died. And so when it dies, it'll just start settling immediately. It won't stay floating and, and it'll stop treating well. As an operator, that's probably your biggest fear because uh, it takes a long time to build the bug, you know, build the bacteria back up, you know, probably three weeks. Every change you make is about three weeks before you really see like the effects of what you've done. Turning this plant around is like turning around a train, right? So it's a slow process. Wow, so something came to the plant that killed all of the bacteria? Yeah. And you didn't figure out what it was? No, and we probably never will. Even dying is a slow process, right? Like by the time we see that it was dying, we were probably days away from whatever had happened and there's just no way to really like, you know, look in the past and see what happened. Sometimes you can see stuff coming through or you can smell it or, you know what I mean? Like you can notice changes, but all the operators around here, we, we didn't notice anything. So then you build up the new bacteria like colony just by getting a new influx of water. Yeah, like I said, it's everything in here is in the environment. So when the plant was initially built, they seeded it with bacteria from a different plant, but you can also just wait and it'll just grow naturally. So what did you do with the waste? Like what happened? What did you do with the water? It still just goes to the river and it's just, we tell the state and they, they get mad at us, trying to find us. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's only so much you can do, right? Like, I just want to back up and say it's like we weren't, it wasn't like raw sewage going to the river. It was just less treated sewage. But most of the time when things are running smoothly at the plant. The effluent that's going into the river is usually cleaner than the river from a bacteria, from a biologic standpoint. That effluent, or the treated wastewater, gets pumped into the Colorado River near the wetlands. You can find more information about Moab's wastewater reclamation facility in today's show notes. And now for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. Construction on the new Utah Raptor State Park will begin within the next few days. I spoke with Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent about the park's plans to honor both the paleontology and the World War II history of the Dalton Wells area. The Utah Raptor State Park north of Moab is very close to breaking ground. Momentum is building up at the site after delays related to obtaining groundwater sources um, and just general construction costs and slow construction timelines in the post-pandemic era. Thankfully, though, those things are are getting behind the park and the park is just about ready to start construction. Um, when is the expected opening date? They don't have a date on that necessarily. I know the groundbreaking ceremony will be within uh, the next week or two. I actually don't know a whole lot about this new state park. What else can you tell us about it? For those who may not know, uh, the new state park is primarily focused on the area's rich paleontological history. There is a historic quarry in the Dalton Wells area north of Moab that's yielded thousands of dinosaur bones that themselves have led to the naming of, I think, at least a dozen potentially new dinosaur species, including the Utah raptor, as folks may know about already, and the Moab which I did not know was a dinosaur, but it sure is. Um, so it's a very important area for paleontology. Um, but additionally, there's some interesting cultural history and, and legacies uh, in the Dalton Wells and Willow Springs areas as well. They were home to a civilian conservation corps camp that was later converted into an inter internment camp for Japanese Americans during World War II. So those uh, that 
those cultural legacies will also be honored in the new park. And one fun thing to note is apparently they're still finding dinosaur bones all the time over there. Uh, park manager Josh Hansen told me he found like a sauropod vertebra just the other day, um, and they're alerting researchers to everything they find, and they're going to be a few scientists visiting the site uh, later this fall to conduct a closer examination. So there could be more research actually happening in this area in the future. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder when they're breaking ground if they're going to have to have like a paleontologist on site to make sure they're not <laughs> totally. bulldozing over precious fossils dig up a dinosaur skeleton yeah. cool you want to move on to moisture in around here absolutely um as folks may have i'm sure seen there is still snow lingering in the lasalles um, and that is a good indication of the high moisture that is still benefiting the area after this year's phenomenal snowpack and precipitation um, according to the july 1st water report from the natural resources conservation service uh, precipitation is still right on par kind of across the state across june soil moisture is still higher both in the mountains and kind of the mid-level rangelands um, much higher than it was last year that is to to say um, but you know notably it's it's still we're still experiencing great moisture in the area but of course the weather system as folks may know switched to a very hot and dry system um, just a few weeks ago and some meteorologists and climate forecasters are concerned that you know if this persists and if the monsoon season isn't very strong which right now it's looking like it might not be uh, things could start to dry out very quickly moving into the later summer and fall so it's you know I don't think anyone needs to be that worried yet, but they're certainly keeping an eye out. Mm -hmm. So meteorologists are already anticipating that monsoon season is going to be kind of light this year? Potentially, yeah. So I spoke with John Meyer at the Utah Climate Center, um, and he said, you know, monsoons are notoriously difficult to forecast, so we can't say for certain what they're going to do or not going to do. Uh, but he did say that, you know, like many other weather trends this past spring, the monsoons, monsoon season will at least be delayed, most likely. You know, its typical onset is right around now, mid to late July, but he's saying it's quite likely that it'll be probably a few weeks later. Mm -hmm. um, and that being said, too, there are a couple of early signals that the season itself could be kind of lackluster. Um, apparently, the monsoon season season existing right now in western Mexico isn't looking super great and there are some other indications like certain oscillations in the development of the El Nino weather pattern things mm -hmm. I don't really understand mm -hmm. that signal he said there, there are other dials that are just kind of being turned down essentially that decrease the likelihood of a strong monsoon season mm, that's so interesting what are some of the other repercussions of low soil most moisture yeah, low soil moisture actually impacts um, runoff moving forward because if you get heavy runoff, but the soils are really dry and really thirsty, they suck up a ton of that moisture before it turns into runoff and can do things like filling our reservoirs and our rivers. Um, so soil moisture is actually a very key indication alongside levels of precipitation for, you know, how much our rivers are, are going to see. Wow. Okay. So construction costs are going up in Moab? Yes, probably not a surprise to anyone, but it was interesting. I spoke with about a half dozen contractors and housing professionals in town just about the uh, typical metric that they use to define vertical residential construction costs, and that's cost per square foot. That typically excludes the cost of land and things like in-ground utilities, like your sewer system. Um, but the cost per square foot that I got from many contractors was about $250 or $300 at absolute bare minimum, which is quite a bit higher than what some national associations have assigned as the average price of, of residential housing. Um, and folks certainly said that the prices have somewhat doubled, actually, in Moab in the last five or ten years. Wow. What's the typical or the national average? 
According to the National Association of Home Builders, it was about $153 per square foot. That's based on one survey with not a ton of home builders included. So it is just one statistic. But I've definitely heard anecdotally that Moab is more expensive than mm. most other places, too. Is that because it's hard to get materials here? It's interesting. There were so many different causes identified. You know, some contractors said that it's just the price of everything going up and every place is being impacted. Um, other folks pointed to Moab's uh, specific, you know, isolation that everything needs to be kind of trucked in here. It's not an easy place to get supplies or labor and also a lack of subcontractors, uh, you know, specialized people like electricians and plumbers and roofers. Um, apparently, there's just a general lack of those services. And with that lack of competition, it's easier for the subcontractors who do exist to just charge higher rates. Mm. Um, so that that was also a, a key point that several folks identified. Yeah. Okay, you also wanted to talk about thistle? Yeah. Um, excitingly, wow. there is a new thistle species that has been named in and named after the LaSalle Mountains. Uh, it is Circium tucanicovatsicum, um, and it was named by Jennifer Ackerfield, who is a botanist with the Denver Botanical Gardens. How did they discover this new species? Yeah, um, Ackerfield, I should say she's the head curator of natural history collections, actually, with the Denver Botanic Gardens. She's kind of made it her career mission to study thistles, and specifically alpine thistles in Colorado and and around Colorado. Um, She said growing up, she was always told that the alpine thistle species she saw was basically the same kind of thing. It was Circium scapulorum, or the mountaintop thistle. Um, And Jennifer said just anecdotally traveling through so many mountains, it was clear that there were different kinds of thistles. They just looked so different. It seemed very unlikely they were all the same thing. Um, And she uses the app iNaturalist. I Mm -hmm. think folks have heard of it potentially and started seeing so many pictures of this thistle in the LaSalle Mountains that looked so different from Circium scapulorum and Apparently, it was named a bunch of different things on the app. So she's like, I have to go out there. This could be a new species. Um, she investigated and I think uploaded some photos or looked at some photos of it in the app and, and ran through some processing to try to identify similarities between this thistle and Circium scapulorum or other thistles. And the thistle species came out so different from scapulorum and so different from any other named thistle species. It just seemed likely that it was a new, a new one which is very cool. That is cool. Is it specific to the LaSalle's? Yeah, right now it's considered endemic. So I think Mm. as of this point, at least it's found only in Moab's mountains. Um, But it was really interesting talking with uh, Jennifer, of course, who's made it her life work to study these plants about the bad rap that they have from people. She said it's not uncommon to see them kicked over, or pulled up um, along trails because folks think they look like weeds. Mm. And she made the really good point that, you know, if, some, if you're seeing something in the alpine, it's it's actually not likely that it would be a non-native thistle and that it's important to kind of re-examine our entrenched notion of what a weed is because oftentimes our understanding of a weed doesn't necessarily align with what, you know, a healthy ecology looks like. So I think she's also kind of on a public relations campaign for this very cool type of plant. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Fire season is upon us in southeastern Utah. I spoke with Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News about the recent wildfire on I-70 and what we can expect as more vegetation dries out. On July 10th, a vehicle rollover near mile marker 217 on Interstate 70 um, caused this wildfire that grew to like 1,800 acres by the next day. Um, And it was contained by July 12th, but this kind of highlighted um, that we have a really intense wildfire season gearing up. Um, so I talked to the Moab Valley Fire Protection District. Um, I talked with the Wildland Fire Coordinator for the department. And 
He said this year's brush fires have been a lot more frequent because there's this really heavy load of dry grasses. So we had a really intense monsoon season um, last summer and then that kind of led into this really wet winter. So all of this cheatgrass grew and by now it's just dried into wildfire fuel. So brush fires are really common this year. Wow. Okay. So was that fire on I-70 one of the first fires of the season or have there been others around here? Um, There have been a lot of others. So since July 1st, according to the fire department's Facebook page, they've responded to 17 calls. Um, Seven of those were on the night of July 4th and they were all brush fires started because of fireworks. Um, They've responded to two other calls of brush fires started to vehicle rollovers too. Um, And so yeah, this is very, like, it's just really dry out there, and any little tiny spark can start a fire. Did they give any tips for, like, what to do if, I don't, or I don't know, how to prevent wildfires at your house, or? Yeah, yeah, it's really just um, being vigilant about any sort of fire, like, um, Clark Mon, who's the wildland fire coordinator, really said, like, any teeny tiny thing can start a fire, and so just be really aware of anything that could cause sparks, like something dragging um, beneath a car could start a spark that then kicks into the brush, or, like, cigarettes, or your campfire at home, even, if you don't put it out enough, could... Um, like the coals could fester under there. And then if the wind picks up and brushes that into cheatgrass, it would just start a fire. Yeah. Is there a fire ban right now? Yes, there is a fire ban right now in the city of Moab. Um, the city of Moab pretty much always bans fires. Okay. Good to know. Where else do you want to take us today? Yeah. So, um, I got really excited about this story that I reported on about, um, a team of paleontologists working with the BLM who found North America's oldest mosasaur fossil, and they found it at Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Wow. What is a mosasaur? So a mosasaur is um, this type of lizard that was land-dwelling, but then it slunk into the ocean and then eventually became this giant, like, 50-foot predator. Um, So mosasaurs really ruled the ocean until the extinction 66 million years ago. Um, But paleontologists have always been really curious about what the mosasaurs looked like when they were first crawling into the ocean and like how they became this giant creature. Um, And so in 2012, this man named Scott Richardson, who was a volunteer for a lot of paleontology museums and organizations, um, kind of got bored. It was winter and he didn't really have a lot going on. And so he called up Dr. Barry Albright, who is um, this researcher working at the University of Florida. He has a PhD in vertebrate paleontology. And Scott was like, hey, can I go into the tropic shale and poke around a little bit? So the tropic shale is this um, huge formation of mud deposited from the Western Interior Seaway that was active during the latter half of the Mesozoic era, which was 251 to 66 million years ago. Um, so he's like, let me go poke around in there. You know, I'm like probably going to find a shark tooth and maybe a plesiosaur. And plesiosaurs were these really um, common species of swimming reptiles that lived for a super long time. Um, so the tropic shale has a ton of plesiosaur fossils and also fossils of sea turtles and sharks and fish. Um, so it's really common to find things in there. So Dr. Albright was like, sure, Scott, go poke around in the tropic shale. Um, but also he said, you know, plesiosaurs are getting a little boring. 
Um, and he was telling me this, and he said, he told Scott, you know, if you're going to go back into the tropic shale, don't find any more plesiosaurs. We're, we have too many. <laughs> it's getting a little bit boring. He said, how about you become a hero and find us a mosasaur? And so three weeks later, Albright is delivering a lecture at the University of Florida, and his phone chimes three times. And usually he doesn't pick it up because he's a good teacher. Um, but this time he took his phone out of his pocket, and it was Scott Richardson sending photos of a fossil. <laughs> Immediately, Albright cusses to his class. <laughs> and he says, these are mosasaur vertebrae. And he, he said, the dude delivered. Um, and so that was in 2012 when they found the first mosasaur in the tropic shale. And everyone was, like, super excited. And over the next two field seasons, um, a BLM and National Park Service team recovered 50% of the specimen, which is super special. Um, and then they just published this research paper discussing the findings in June. And so what they found um, was kind of two significant things. First, this is the oldest mosasaur fossil found in North America. It's 93.7 million years old. So it's super, super old. Um, the second oldest mosasaur fossil found in North America is 93.6 million years old, which is a difference of 0.1 million years, but also that is 100,000 years. So it's a very <laughs> long time. Um, and 95 million years ago, mosasaur ancestors had just crawled into the ocean from land. And so at this time, they were super peripheral players in the major ecosystem and like they hadn't come to dominate the environment yet and so paleontologists are really curious about how they did end up dominating the environment um, and so this fossil is a really cool look into that um, and also this fossil is from an entirely new species of mosasaur um, so the team got to give it a new name and they also discovered that it had this new blood, supra blood supply to the brain. Um, the primary blood supply shifted from um, this branch of like random arteries to more arteries entering like right below the brain stem. Um, and so this just kind of like gives paleontologists a timeline of mosasaur evolution. Like they know like 95 million years ago, these creatures were lizards that crawled into the ocean. And then 92 million years ago, um, this specimen called the Dallasaurus that was found, that's a mosasaur that was found in Dallas, um, had evolved into this marine form. Like it was not gonna be able to go back on land. Um, 90 million years ago, mosasaurs started to spread across the world. And 75 million years ago, there were these huge giants that dominated the food chain. So now we have kind of this other little um, 94 million years ago, they developed this new blood supply to the brain. Um, so really cool. And they called it the Cerebosaurus Dali from the Arabic Sarab, meaning desert mirage, which is kind of this homage to um, the vanished seaway that left behind the tropic shale. Mm. And then the Greek Saros, meaning lizard, and Dahl, honoring the volunteer Steve Dahl, um, who helped recover a lot of the specimen. And so... Dinosaur naming has evolved from, like, triceratops, which just means three-horned face, into pop culture references and <laughs> anecdotes from the field. Yeah, they're so, running out of names. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another researcher I talked to said, um, you know, if a volunteer comes and finds a new dinosaur in the tropic shale, they'll definitely name it after you. Cool. Get out there, volunteers. I know, honestly. Wow, that was very thorough. Thank you for that story. Yeah. <laughs> I loved all of the dialogue. <laughs> Okay, and to wrap up, Canyonlands Research Center has an artist-in-residence? Yes. The Canyonlands Research Center 
is located at Dugout Ranch, south of Moab, which is this historic ranch um, known super well in Moab. And the research center does a ton of cool, like really groundbreaking science um, looking into like desert ecology. And so now they have their first artist in residence, and the artist's name is Jorge Rojas, and he is going to be taking all of this research that people are doing about biocrust at the CRC, and he's going to turn it into this really cool, immersive, and interactive museum exhibit. Cool. Yeah. Like a virtual reality kind of thing, or what kind of... Yeah, he's not super sure yet what it will become, um, but he really said like he wants to inform people in this region and also visitors to the region about why Biocrest is important and a lot of the really cool science that's coming out about it. Um, and so the exhibit isn't going to be on display until next year at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, but in the meantime, he'll be at the CRC, like working really closely with um, all these researchers and kind of trying to turn Biocrest research into like something that everybody can care about. And so he said he wants to make the research accessible and engaging to all audiences, whether that's somebody who's just getting introduced to it for the first time or people who know a ton about Biocrest. Um, and he said, like, when people think about sustainability, they usually think about the Amazon or glaciers, but Biocrest is really the living skin of the earth. And so he's really excited to take that approach to it. Um, and then also the CRC is psyched about having an artist in residence. Like this is the first time this program um, is happening. And so Kristen Red um, said that she has huge plans for this residency. She hopes it can serve as a model to other conservation sites um, and also just be a way that the CRC can better um, share its research with people all over the world. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.